All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to be in the Song of Solomon today, which is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon, just after the book of Psalms. We are on the fourth idyll, the fourth poem, if you will, within the Song of Songs. So you want the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're going to move from 5-2 to 6-3. Just an FYI, we just finished the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights. It took us almost two years to go through the book of Exodus. And I'm going to teach another study in the Song of Solomon this Wednesday night. So if you want to keep tracking with us, come on out Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. I'll teach the next one, and then hopefully we'll be done with the book this next Sunday, and we'll move into the Advent messages which focus on Christmas. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, Wisdom in Times of Conflict. You guys, if you've been here with us, you know that I mentioned to you that the Song of Solomon is set in wisdom literature or the genre of wisdom literature. And today we're going to look at wisdom in times of conflict. And I know that most of you can't use this. I'm sure you don't have any conflict in your life. For those of you who do, pray with me. <laughs> Father, thank you so much. We want to know you. And the Song of Solomon is really about intimacy and it's not just about marriage. It's really, there's a spiritual wisdom here for Christ and his church. There's relational wisdom here. There's so much that we can glean, Lord. And there's layers of insight that we want to understand. There's a beautiful picture here of Christ and his bride. And I pray on a practical level as we deal with marriage and uh, those relationships that you'll give us insight so we can fight fair. We can learn to anticipate conflict, move through it, grow through it, kiss and make up and be the better for it. So Lord, I'm just asking that you would set aside this time for what you want to say. Give us open hearts, open ears, and a heart to obey you for your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, if you've been with us in the Song of Solomon up to this point, you may have come to the conclusion that this was a perfect marriage in the Song of Solomon. These are two young people. They are romantically attracted to one another. They've waited until their wedding to be intimate. And they love each other and they're excited about one another. But one writer put it well that so far the book seems to be more about idealism than it's been about realism. And the fact of the matter is that out of the eight chapters of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, two of them are devoted to conflict. That's about a quarter of the content. And that is the reality of life. When we get married, the honeymoon does end. Real life does come. And with that comes conflict. Now, conflict has to be anticipated in marriage. If anybody told you that they don't fight with their spouse, they have broken a commandment. They're a liar, a liar, and a liar. But conflict can be limited. It can be a small percentage of your marriage, and it can be a garden of growth, just like the Bible teaches that when we go through various trials, like James 1, 2 through 4, we should count it all joy when we face various trials, because we can know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and then the result is what? Maturity. 
So as time goes by and as we have conflict in the context of marriage, and many of you are married, some of you are not, there's application for friendship, but there's also going to be the spiritual plane, which I'll talk about in a moment. But with this idea of marriage, with many of you being married, how can we move through conflict and have it be a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block? One thing I would say to you, especially if you're young, courting or newly married, is that you're going to have conflict and you have to anticipate it. But the question is, how can you deal with it? There's going to be some good insights uh, in terms of that specific issue with us today. So this is a marriage scene. The scene is the woman's bedroom, the wife's bedroom. We pick it up in chapter 5, verse 2. She's speaking. She says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Some scholars believe her heart is Solomon. Some believe that she's kind of like sleeping, but the romantic part of her is awake to him. There's different views of this. Some people, some scholars believe this is a dream sequence. Let me just uh, talk to you for a moment on an interpretive level. When you interpret the Bible, this is called the, the uh, science of hermeneutics. The, you could call it the art and science of hermeneutics, which is a technical word for interpreting the Bible, is that there are some people who believe, some scholars that believe that this couple, namely Solomon and the Shulamite bride, are simply a poetic couple. They've been created by the author, and it is all poetry. They're not a real couple in a real historical context. If you pick up some modern commentaries, you're going to see that point of view. And I'm going to tell you that even though that may not be where I land, I, it certainly has merit. I believe we do have a historical couple, the real Solomon, a real Shulamite bride set in a historical context. But let me just talk to you about a third level. A way that we get underneath the text or above the text is articulated by none other than C.H. Spurgeon. He said of the Song of Songs, it is a book of deep mystery, not to be understood except by the initiated. This book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and no one will ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat of it until he has been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love that has delivered him from death. What Spurgeon is saying is that on a spiritual level, there is Christ and his bride. And what we're going to do is we're going to move in between both levels today. We're going to talk on a practical level. We're going to look at real marriage, how to deal with conflict, how to resolve it. But on a spiritual level, we're going to see Christ in his church. And we're going to talk about some of the spiritual application. We go back to the scene. She's in her bedroom, she's asleep, her heart's awake, and a voice comes, and she says, it's my beloved, and he was knocking. Here's what he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. One rendering could be, arise, my love, open your heart, for my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. So he comes knocking on the door, and he's got some nice language for her. He calls her my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Now, from everything that we can see, he doesn't want to talk politics or current events with her. He wants to be intimate with her. He wants to be close to her. He wants them to be, you know, passionate in their marriage setting, which we know much of this book is about. 
And so he comes knocking. Apparently he's been working late. His head is wet with the dew. We can ma imagine maybe uh, he's been working and sweating or perhaps he's, it's uh, misty or raining or whatever the case may be. But he comes to her door. Now at this time in the ancient world, men and women, husband and wife, had separate bedrooms. And some of you are thinking, exactly, I knew it was biblical to kick him out of the bedroom five years ago. No, 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 wait a minute. This is how the ancient world was. I'm not saying this is what you should do. But she would have her separate sleeping chamber. And so Solomon would come. She would have a bolt on the door. And she obviously had the door locked. And he comes knocking. And apparently he's a little bit late. He's been working late. Drenched with the dew could have the idea that he's had a long day. They had a rendezvous planned and maybe he was a couple hours late. We all know how that can be. Now, if this is literally King Solomon, you could imagine what a day in the life of King Solomon looked like. His, he was in high demand. His wisdom was known worldwide. The Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10, came to hear his wisdom. People asked him to solve difficult situations and riddles and the like, and he was putting his wisdom everywhere. He was in high demand. So it's not surprising that he would have a long day at the office. And there's two sides of an equation just taking the, the picture for what it is, a man working in high demand and a woman waiting at home for him. Perhaps her anticipation was, we've picked a time, I've lit the candle, I've put on the right clothing, and she was ready and he was late. And from her side, she might have felt disappointed. Maybe she felt like she wasn't prioritized. And that can close the spirit, right? So maybe she was anticipating a night of romance. She was ready for a night of romance. But he showed up at an hour that was later than expected. And sometimes when that happens, our spouse may just say, you know, you had a window. <laughs> the window has closed. The door has shut. And it's not going to happen. And he comes with these charming, wonderful words. You're my dove. You're my darling. It's been a long day. When we are intimate with our spouse, and it doesn't have to be sexual intimacy, it can just be hugging and talking, there is a sweet release to be with the one you love in a fallen world. And so when we have that time when we can just, you know, get away from the world and our home can be a place of shalom and we can be with the one we love, there's a great power to that. And I know that some of you don't have that. You are lonely, you're alone, and, and that can be a hard place to be. And my prayer for you is that you'll lean into the Lord if that's the case, or into friendships or fellowship. But here, he's had a long day, and on the spiritual level, this could be a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, the dark night of the soul moment for Jesus. He was praying and he had initiated the new covenant and he had essentially said to his church, his bride, will you marry me? And they all drank from the cup of redemption representing the new covenant and forgiveness and all of that. And they were his and he was theirs. And they went off into the garden of Gethsemane and the disciples fell asleep. And Jesus famously said, directing his words to Peter, couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? On a spiritual level, that may be the backdrop here. It's been a dark night for Jesus. He comes to his own and he finds her sleeping. And so he speaks words 
darling, dove, um, open up to me, open to me. He's knocking at the door. In the book of Revelation, if you hold your place in the Song of Solomon, we'll turn to chapter 3, the last book of the New Testament. We have the image picked up by the writer John. And uh, he addresses several churches in chapter 3, but I want to point out a couple of them and we'll make the parallel uh, we'll, we'll take the parallel example here. In Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, Revelation 3.1 says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Then he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, Revelation 3.2 which were about to die. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. In Revelation 3, skipping down to the last part of the chapter, he addresses lukewarm Laodicea. With these words, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Let me just say that repentance is for the church. It's to turn around from our slumber, from maybe being distant from our God. Behold, here's the image, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, notice the intimate language, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes the difficulty of life, the times of conflict, if you will, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then these famous words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Back to the Song of Solomon. In the spiritual application, Jesus is knocking at the door of the church's heart. Revelation 2 and 3 is not addressed to an unbelieving world. It's addressed to the church. The church of Sardis, a dead church that needs to awaken. The church of Laodicea, a lukewarm church that needs to get back where it belongs. Here we are in the state of California. A proposition passed that allows for abortion up until the moment of birth. And there's even a crazy law beyond that, that a child could die and no one's going to be charged or there's no investigation. How have we gotten here? We're still 64% of Americans claim that they are Christians. Where is the disconnect? Where was the church? I was out at a rally for Love Life yesterday. And well over 200 people got on their knees in the grass that was wet across from Planned Parenthood in Riverside and repented on behalf of this nation. And it was a beautiful thing to see. But people who are involved in pro-life ministry said that they were going to churches and that pastors didn't even know what Prop 1 was. Do we wonder why we have the disconnect from the moral values of the church and the Bible to the moral values of a state or a nation? How is it that we've come to this point where we are in such a slumber that we can somehow compartmentalize a, an egregious wrong in our culture and our time in the church? There's something wrong. 
And there was something wrong way back when Jesus assessed the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he says to Sardis and Laodicea, you better wake up. And if you don't wake up, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What does that mean? I think he's, he's saying he's going to remove the church. He's going to remove the influence of the church. And we've had mainline denominations that are literally today bankrupt. They have no longer any impact on our culture. Do you know why? Because they've compromised on doctrine. They've compromised with the cultural winds. And they are irrelevant. And everybody knows it. Because they can't speak with any moral authority to the culture any longer. Because they are just too compromised. That's where we are. Now the question becomes, what do we do at a moment like that? We repent. We get where we need to be. Here's Solomon knocking at the door. He's late. He says, open up, buttercup. How do you think she'll respond? Verse three. She says, I've taken off my dress. I've put off my garment. Verse three. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Verse three, NIV. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Not a very enthusiastic response. The modern equivalent is, honey, I have a headache. I've put on my face cream. I have my retainer in. I'm connected to the breathing machine, <laughs> which some of us unfortunately have to wear. Those of you who are young, you'll, this will come to you later. There are people at night that have to put on these machines. They appear to look like Darth Vader. So when you go into the bedroom, you know. Anyway, you can fill in the blanks. It's conflict time. <laughs> he says, honey, lovely one, sweetheart, I'm home. Here I am. And she's like, I got my robe on. I got that green mask on. It's over. <laughs> you, you had a window of time, buddy. I hear you knocking, but you can't come here. <laughs> And so there he is, right? And he anticipated the moment. Perhaps she did as well, but now she, she doesn't want to get out of bed. And he's knocking. I just want to say on a practical level to you ladies that men's egos in this area are easily bruised. Now, he may not tell you this, but I'll tell you that if a man gets rejected by his wife, in terms of intimacy, it will bruise his ego. And he will probably go silent. That's what men tend to do. And so, basically, she's closed the door to him. Now, there needs to be understanding in marriage on both sides, right? We've talked about how love puts the needs of someone uh, above ourselves. And marriage doesn't mean I always get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, etc. There needs to be a beautiful symmetry in marriage and patience with one another. But he's come with the expectation and she's basically closed the door. She says, no, uh, I'm, I'm tucked in for the night. And so what will Solomon do? What would you do? What do you do in moments like that? Do you sulk? Do you pout? My beloved extended his hand through the opening. Here's what Solomon did. And my feelings were aroused for him. My heart was thrilled within me, ESV. My heart began to pound, NIV. Solomon extended the hand. I was looking a little bit at the original language here and trying to understand what is actually going on, whether it's poetic or 
you know, real. What did Solomon do? And some of you might remember that in the book of Esther, when Esther had that moment where she was going to approach the king, she said, no one can approach him uh, unannounced or uninvited. And the, the way that you knew you were okay is if he extended, remember, the scepter. And if he extended the scepter to you, you know that you had the grace and favor of the king. Well, Solomon is a king and he extends his hand to her and it arouses her feelings. She, her heart begin, begins to pound because he responds in love. What does it mean to extend a hand to our spouse when maybe we're on a different page? It means to love them anyway. Uh, this is the spiritual application. He comes in grace to touch his lover. The core of my very being trembled at his touch. How, how my soul melted when he spoke. The Latin Vulgate has something very close to this. When he spoke to me, my soul melted. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, our hearts burned within us as he spoke the word of God to us. I want to be close to this lovely one who always loves me through thick and thin. Whether I respond immediately to his knock, whether when he's knocking on the door of my heart, I always say, yes, Lord, whatever you'd have me to do, I'm ready right now. Here I am, send me. Or if I respond rather slowly, or maybe you're in a season right now where your response has been very slow to evangelism, to discipleship, to the things of God. Well, here we are. And so he responds in love. He is gracious to her. She says, I arose to open for my beloved. She's had a change of heart because of his love. It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. And my hands drip with myrrh. Myrrh can be solid and liquid form. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Rather than knocking down the door, Solomon left the fragrance of love. I don't know if it was a hand gesture I don't know if he just said, honey, it's okay. I know you're tired. I love you. We'll, we'll talk tomorrow, whatever it is. But he was gracious. He left the myrrh of love on the door and it touched her. The fragrance permeated her being as well. And so she touched the handle, the handle that he respected the handle is on our side. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. If you want to have close fellowship with the Lord, the handle of the door he will honor is on your side. The Bible will not fly off your nightstand. Turn off the remote so that you can be spiritual. You have to make a move. You will grow as much as you decide that you want to be closer with the Lord. There is a human side of this sanctification process. And so she was there. She made her excuses. And he loved her despite it. He extended her hand. Shalak is the Hebrew word. It can mean to send, stretch forth or send away. We're going to see both here. But I think that he gave the signal. It's okay, honey. I love you, good night, we'll have coffee in the morning, whatever it may be. He didn't do this. That ungrateful Shulamite, I'm the king of Israel, I'm Solomon. Everybody wants, you know, my attention. There's a harem over there. I could have been with any woman I wanted to be with, but I came knocking on the Shulamite's door, peasant that she was. 
and she refuses me, Solomon, the king? He could have done all of that. He could have banged on the door a little bit more because that always gets us, you know, a way, way further in our relationship. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll pout and I'll blow this door down. And then he starts quoting scripture. Don't you know, woman, your body belongs to me, 1 Corinthians 7. My body belongs to you. You start quoting scripture and you start rattling that latch. You are a dumb person. Because you know how far that gets you, right? Anger, manipulation, intimidation. Oh, it makes the relationship go so much deeper. Well, let me tell you something. You don't want to be with me? Well, you can cook for yourself tomorrow. And by the way, sleep with the dog for a couple of weeks because that's where you're going to be in the doghouse. And we start, right? You know, you know you're just like so-and-so. You're just like your mother. You're just like, <laughs> and we start throwing the barbs and oh, our relationship, boy, it's just going to grow. <laughs> you see, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You and I must walk in the fruit of the Holy Spirit because my job is to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And as we mature and grow, we have to understand that there's two sides to that equation because a wife's job is also to love her husband and submit to him. And if there is a beautiful symmetry there, it will work. There'll be give and take. There'll be a wondrous compromise. But he does not begin the blame game, the huff and puff game, the manipulation, the intimidation game. If you do that, you're in trouble. So let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Maybe in those moments we can flip around and put ourselves in the other person's shoes and maybe say, well, I was late and she's had a long day too. And, you know, we, we, we got to try to move away from this selfishness. Proverbs 16, 32 says, he who's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The greatest obstacle to intimacy, says O'Donnell, is selfishness. You may get what you want in the moment, but you're not going to get where you really want to be. And so 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about love and says that love is patient, love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. Love keeps no record of wrongs. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying if the Holy Spirit is really dominating our lives, then we won't use intimidation, manipulation, hate, etc. None of that will work. You say, well, what do I do if I'm in a situation where it feels like it's imbalanced? You trust your spouse with the Lord. You trust that if your spouse is off track, the Lord will discipline them. The Lord will deal with them. The Lord will speak to their heart. You pray for them, but you don't intimidate them or push them or do any of that kind of stuff because it gets you absolutely nowhere. He is their Lord as well. And so he responds in love. And she opens to her beloved, verse 6. She says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. Now, in the time that she got out of bed and 
you know, had the epiphany that she should respond to him and got dressed or whatever it was, he left. And she says, my heart went out to him. And as he spoke, as he was speaking kind words, she had a change of heart. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he didn't answer me. She realizes that his needs are her needs and vice versa. So she pursues him. She wants to be with him. He has won her over with love. One writer says, the Shulamite must now face the theology of hardship as the relationship stretches. Where is he? My tears have been my food day and night where others say to me, where is your God? Psalm 42, three, I'm searching, but I can't seem to find him. Perhaps that's how you feel. Now, God's not far from each one of us, and we know that he lives inside believers, but we also know that we have some dark nights of the soul. A writer asks a question. Will you be fervent to seek the Lord without the feeling of his presence? Do you pursue him solely for your own spiritual pleasure, or will you pursue him for his sake? When the Lord withdraws the sense of his presence for a season, we we can lose our joy And worship becomes a struggle. We may feel helpless and useless as God seems silent. No amount of pleading brings him out of hiding. These moments can test us severely, but they can also bring forth fruit that will remain. You know, I I have to ask myself at times, because I've been a Christian for a long time. I became a believer in the late 80s. There's times when I feel like the Lord is as near as my breath. But there's other times that I don't always feel it. So what is my call? Only to love him in seasons when I'm really feeling it? That's the world. I don't feel in love anymore. I love him, but I'm not in love with him. What in the world does that mean? That can change multiple times in an hour. (laughs) Especially traveling in an automobile. (laughs) Will you be fervent and seek the Lord even when you don't feel it? Will you love your spouse because you made a covenant in sickness and in health till death do we part? Or is it only when you feel it? Well, she goes out. Look what happens. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me, says the bride, and they struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. Some believe this is a dream sequence. Some believe it's reality. She goes out and the watchmen of the city who should know who she is. She's the queen, the bride of the king. How dare they beat her and remove her shawl from her? But do you see the picture, brethren? The Christian life, sometimes, as we pursue our Lord, we get beat and persecuted. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. We sign up to love this beloved one, the one that loved us with and paid for our you know, transgressions in his own blood. And then sometimes we have family that disowns us and people who don't like us and people who call us names simply because we name the name of Jesus. Is it at that point that we say, well, I'm done. I'm divorcing this one. 
I, I didn't sign up for this to get beat up, to have my shawl removed. But that's when the relationship stretches. And so she throws on the robe, runs out to the streets, searching for him, and gets beat up. The watchman, says one writer, are like the majority of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They don't love the king and they persecute the woman on account of jealousy. So the watchmen beat her up and take her shawl and she pursues. These are times when our faith is stretched. These are times when we have a disagreement with our spouse and we say, I don't even know where that came from or I don't know why they said that or I don't know what's going on and the question is, will you love them anyway? Will you, will you try to find out what's going on? Will you pray for them? Will you be patient? Is she being disciplined? Is this a picture of discipline because she didn't respond to him? I'll leave that to you. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker vessel, the feminine one, she's a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You cannot change your spouse. That's God's job. If you are on the verge, if you're in a courting relationship, you have gotten the best of that person as you date in court. Do you, do you all know that? They brush their teeth. They put cologne on. After you get married, it's over. <laughs> that may not happen. <laughs> Here's my point. If you think, oh, they'll change after we get married, you're in trouble. <laughs> no, no, no. You're getting their best right now. We have to change in the way that we love. And so here we have the biblical formula. We trust the Lord to change our spouse. We don't manipulate. We don't manufacture. And some of us have been waiting for a long time. And it can be hard. So there she is out on the streets and she runs into the daughters of Jerusalem. These have been kind of in the musical theater the, the women, the bridesmaids, and so forth. And she says, I adjure you, verse 8, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, tell him I am lovesick. I'm faint with love, NIV. I think she's saying, tell him I'm sorry. If you find him out in the streets and you run into him, tell my beloved I'm sorry. You know, the essence of repentance in the church is to tell our beloved Lord, I'm sorry. Do you know that that can go such a long way? The moment you decide to say, I'm sorry, pretty much ends marital conflict. But we're prideful. And so she says, look, if you find him, tell him I love him. Tell him I'm sorry. And they say, well, what kind of beloved is your beloved, nine, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? 
Why are you so emotional and distraught? What is so great about this man? Other people may look at you and your life and your priorities and they don't understand you. What, what's so great about this Christian thing? You go to Bible studies on a Friday night? Have you lost your mind? And if you get really serious about the Lord, other believers won't understand you. They'll say, aren't you taking this Christian thing a little too far, man? Church on Sunday, right? Well, they say, Describe him to us. What's so great about him that even in this trial you pursue him? She begins to describe him. His shining beauty will rush before us. One writer, and I'll leave it to you to decide if this is accurate, describes her description of him as one of the clearest, most glorious descriptions of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. The awakened bride pursuing her beloved gives us a poetic listing of virtues that many see as the virtues of Jesus. Let me just say this to you. I said to a group here recently, there's no physical description of Jesus in the entire Bible. And a couple of great Bible students said, wait a minute, Revelation 1 talks about his feet and his eyes. And let me just say that that's symbolic language. Jesus doesn't have eyes that are like blast furnaces, okay? It's, it's symbolic language. It's not necessarily a physical description of Jesus. What we're dealing with in Song of Solomon chapter 5 is very much like Revelation 1. It's poetic and symbolic, pointing to his greater uh, character and his attributes, if you will. And so you can think of Jesus in Revelation 1 as the glorified risen Christ, the high priest. You can think of Daniel 7, 9. You can think of Matthew 17 where he's the glorified Christ on the mountain. And she says, if you want to know, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy. Ruddy means reddish, reddish brown. It was a description of David when he was about to be anointed as king of Israel. He's outstanding among 10,000. That could speak of infinity. There's nobody like him. She starts off, he's dazzling, he's ruddy. Daniel Estes comments, he says, in marriage, it is easy to lose sight of how special one's spouse is. The inexorable duties of life can dilute the delight of intimacy so that what used to provoke excitement now evokes only a yawn. Indifference is a lethal blow to intimacy because it communicates that the relationship is not valued as it should be. Maybe she's coming to the realization that she didn't value him, so she says, no, his head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, could be innocent, could be the fluttering of the wings of doves, perhaps a dove's wings, besides streams of water bathed in milk, reposed in their setting, his cheeks, uh, the Hebrew root is, are soft. They're like a bed of balsam. Uh, men in those days had beards, so she might be speaking of his beard. Sweet-scented banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His words pierce and they heal. He knows how to speak a word in due season to encourage me. His hands, those hands that were pierced for our sins, are rods of gold set with beryl. It speaks of royal power. His abdomen 
is carved ivory, speaks of smoothness, but that he understands us in the deepest part of who he is. He sympathizes and empathizes with our weaknesses, amen? It's ivory inlaid with sapphires. He's a jewel, is this lovely one. In the high priest's breastplate, there was a sapphire, and on it was the name Simeon scratched in. Simeon means he who hears. The Lord hears us, empathizes with us. It points to his inward, his innards, or even points to the bowels that he understands, sympathizes, and then he hears us. He is a jewel of a high priest. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. These are uh, things that make connections to the temple. He's solid. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars, strong, beautiful, solid. He is the rock of ages. The cedars of Lebanon were used in the construction of the temple. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. You know, when you are asked about the one that you love, I wonder if you have a description at the ready. I wonder if I have anything that comes close to this. Because I'm supposed to be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks me for the reason of the hope that I have. Amen? Why do I have hope? Because of the one who loved me. Because of the one who is altogether beautiful. He's my friend. Implicit in her statement is something like this. I miss him. Some of you may remember that Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and he did it as an investigative reporter, and he heard about a man named Charles Templeton who was a contemporary with Billy Graham. Both men were preaching to big audiences, evangelistic crusades, and uh, both um, Graham and Templeton were leading many to the Lord. They say thousands. Templeton had a change of heart. He became an agnostic or an atheist, and he began to write articles against the God of the Bible. Lee Strobel was curious, so he tracked down Charles Templeton in his waning years. He had Alzheimer's, but he would have lucid moments kind of come in and out. So Strobel tracks him down as a reporter, goes to his home, gets an invitation, and begins to interview him. And he has a lucid stretch of time. And after they go back and forth about his views and stuff, Strobel says to him, but what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And Templeton says... I miss him. I miss him. And here, this woman, she's been beat up, she's pursued, and she says, he's my friend. There's nobody like him. I may not understand every season of this life, but I know he's full of sweetness. I know he's the God of love. He's my friend. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. And so they say, final verses, well, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? In other words, well, if he's such a great love of yours, why are you looking for him? Where is he? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Can I ask you a question on a practical level? For those of you who are married, where do you turn when you have conflict? Does your spouse not know where you're going to be? 
Does she have to wonder, does he have to wonder if you're in the bar or maybe you've gone off to do something dumb? The way you fight fair in a covenant, please hear these words, is you fight from your covenant. You do not threaten divorce. You do not say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm out of here. Those words you may try to take back, but it's hard to take back words that pierce like that. Do not threaten divorce when you fight because you'll regret it. Don't try to one-up the person. Just simply, if you need to cool your jets, then maybe you need to remove yourself for the moment. But don't say things that you will regret. And we all have. And we all know that God's grace covers them. Where is he? I hope you don't go to the bar or you don't do something stupid. And she has an epiphany. She says, my beloved, oh, I know. He's gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. Look, if you can fight from the foundation of your covenant, then you can fight fair. Please hear me. You can say to your spouse, look, we're having a disagreement and we are not clicking right now. That's evident. Let's cool off. We'll come back together. I love you. I'm not going anywhere, but I'm going to take a little drive (laughs) for a while. And if your spouse knows where to find you in those moments, everything's going to be okay because you're going to come back together and you're going to work it out, and your marriage will probably be the better for it. But it does come down to the way you handle it. I will tell you this. My wife and I have been married for 32 years. We never fight. <laughs> Ever. No, I'm just kidding. But I will say this. Uh, when, we, when we disagree, it's pretty rare these days. And she may not know this. I think she does, but... but If I ever have taken a drive to cool off, and I have in the last five years, do you know where I go? I go to the church. (laughs) That's me. I go to the church and I sulk a little bit. (laughs) Pastor Michael. (laughs) And then you know what I do? I I have to search my heart. Because usually I know that maybe the bigger piece is me, not her. And then I begin to pray. And then I go back. Because if things are not right with her, nothing in my world's right. And Peter says, if you're trying to compartmentalize your life and you can mistreat your spouse and think spiritual things are going to happen, forget it. Your prayers will be hindered. The Lord's going to tell you, you better go make it right with the one that you say you love, that you're one with, before you start coming up to me and talking about people that you're evangelizing. You better go back and love her. You see, he's in the beds of balsam. I know exactly where he is. We need to be predictable even in times when we don't agree. He's pasturing his flock in the garden in the gardens and gathering the lilies. Solomon was a man of peace. It's a picture of peace. And then she ends it with the covenant. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, he who pastures his flock among the lilies. And so the picture is of oneness. They come back together. A sweet ending, a covenant. I am his 
He is mine. I know who he is. He's my husband in covenant. I know where he is. This couple, says uh, Pastor Tommy Nelson, has slammed the door on divorce because of the way that they handle conflict. A final spiritual insight. As she ponders the question, where is my beloved gone? It dawns on her, quoting, I know where he's gone, into his garden. Wait, I am his garden. He is within me. The garden of the Lord is his church. The bed of spices speaks of the diversity of the church. We are diverse but one. Jesus is always found among his people. This is the lesson repeated through the Song of Songs and throughout the whole Bible. We seem to forget in times of testing and spiritual thirst that we can always find Jesus with his people. He loves to hang out with those who love him. He does not wait until we are perfect because he dwells within us. Lord, thank you for that reality and we want to take a moment to pause and meditate on the word of God. Lord, there's been a lot in this small section to chew on, to consider, and I pray that your voice will be heard above all other voices. I pray that our response to the Holy Spirit will please you. And here we have the gospel right within the context of marriage. And it's both the saving gospel and the keeping gospel. It's the good news that the God who loved us will finish what he started within us. Oh God, help us to hear your voice, to awaken if we've been in a slumber, to become hot or cold if we've been lukewarm to describe the one who loved us with an everlasting love with these kinds of descriptions. He's dazzling, shining, holy, beautiful, glorious. Help us tell others about this one that loves us and the one that we love. Keep your heart bowed. If you've not met this beautiful one who died on the cross to pay your dowry, there's a proposal on the table. He says, will you marry me? Spiritually speaking, you must say, I do. I will. You must forsake all others. All other gods must be dismissed from your life. And you say, you are my savior. You are my Lord. You are my king. You are my God. You are my husband. Would you pray it if it's you right now? If you're watching via live stream, and you haven't done this yet, make it official. Say, I do. He'll give you the engagement ring of his Holy Spirit. He'll seal you for the day of redemption. He is so good. And you'll learn what it means to love him. And you'll learn more about him and his love for you. Lord God, as I, I think about the church, I think about the fact that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And when couples are married for a long time, they pick up, one another's ways of talking and even begin to look like one another. And it's an amazing thing. They wear matching sweaters. But Lord, the beautiful thing is you're conforming us more into the image of Jesus. We're so grateful. We're so grateful. 
Would you heal marriages that may be in a tough spot today? Would you heal hearts? Would you do a beautiful work as we respond to your spirit? We, we just want to say we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.